The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The attack on January 6th was a direct and predictable result of Mr. Trump's decision to use false claims of election fraud. Democrats are using January 6th to avoid accountability. Police are squabbling with protesters. Oh, there we go. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The answer to your question is yes. I felt strongly about this and uh, could have expressed that sooner. It's not common for Republicans to talk about environmental disasters. It's kind of a ambulance chaser move. I mean, you know, when you're chasing around disasters. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Speaker Kevin McCarthy hands over thousands of hours of security video from January 6th to Tucker Carlson. Democrats are calling it a breach of security. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as Washington scrambles to learn what is on the tapes and what would motivate the Speaker of the House to give this access to Fox. We'll talk about it with Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, Democrat from California, who of course served on the January 6th committee. The governor of Illinois pushing back on criticism of high crime in cities like Chicago. Bloomberg's Romaine Bostic spoke with him a short time ago. will join us later this hour. And as Secretary Pete Buttigieg touches down in East Palestine, we'll talk about it more with our signature panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis here for the hour. We start the broadcast today by asking what everyone else is asking in Washington. What is on the tapes? Police are squabbling with protesters. Is it oh, this? There we go. Is it this that Donald Trump Jr. tweeted? Along with a couple of others and showing... Again. Police opening the gates, letting protesters stream in. Who knows? As I read on the terminal, Democrats assail Fox News possession of January 6th Capitol video. Although, do we even know that there is possession? Maybe they reviewed this stuff. Tucker Carlson, given access to unpublicized footage of the January 6th Capitol insurrection, said to be thousands, tens of thousands, possibly of hours of security tape. Axios first reported this. Speaker McCarthy provided this to the Fox News host, remembering that Tucker Carlson has called this a false flag operation. And we also know what Kevin McCarthy thought of the January 6th committee. Democrats are using January 6th to avoid accountability for making the the whole nation less safe and less prosperous. That was back in June. And we don't have to go through the whole deal with who was assigned to the committee and who wasn't. We've been through that, and I know that you're already up to speed on that. Also in June, this was only, what, a week later, the congresswoman from California, Zoe Lofgren, on the January 6th committee. The attack on January 6th was a direct and predictable result of Mr. Trump's decision to use false claims of election fraud to overturn the election and to cling to power. And she's with us right now. Congresswoman Lofgren, welcome back to Bloomberg. Have you seen or did the committee staff see all these hours of footage that the speaker has apparently handed over? Well, we, uh, I don't think he's handed over a hard drive. I think they have provided what uh, 
Carlson has described as unfettered access hmm. to all of it. Um, and, of course, Carlson has promised to air a video on his uh, show um, next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not seen the you know thousands, and I've seen some of it, but when we were uh, working uh, on the January 6th committee, we were very careful to limit access uh, to the video to the members themselves and key staff. Mm-hmm. We had it um, on a... Uh, a computer that wasn't connected to anything else, unable to copy. We disabled the copy functions. It was password uh, controlled. And we did not air anything unless the Capitol Police uh, uh, gave us the high sign that it would not jeopardize uh, the security of the Capitol. So that's what we did. And I fear, and it looks like, that's not what's happening now with yeah. Mr. Carlson. Is there more footage that you didn't potentially see or have access to? Is he pulling from another source here? Or is this part of uh, you know, the massive amount of footage that your committee pulled from in the presentation that you made? It's the massive amount, and I, you know, I didn't watch all of it. I mean, some of it is empty hallways. As yes, you right. Recall, um, you know, the members were uh, sheltering uh, mm-hmm. from the mob, uh, so, yeah, some of it was not very uh, interesting, and I have not, sure. I didn't sit there and watch all of it. But not uh, from a source that, for instance, you did not have access to. This was all from the same pool. Yes, I mean, I could have gone in and watched it all. I didn't think right. it was necessary. Uh, the staff looked at all of it and found out, you know, I, I, the members didn't need to look at the empty hallways, mm-hmm. uh, hallways in the Rayburn building. <laughs> Uh, Tucker Carlson, as I mentioned, has called January 6th a false flag operation. What does that tell you about Speaker McCarthy's motivations here? Well, I, you know, you'd have to ask McCarthy what his motivations are, but it does appear, based on what he said publicly, that he made a promise to the extremists in his caucus uh, to uh, grant access to Carlson as part of his Mm-hmm. a vote-getting gathering effort to become speaker. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, obviously this is not a false flag. Anybody who doubts that can just go uh, to the uh, Library of Congress or the government printing office and take a look yeah. at the report, I mean, and see um, the gigantic mob attack, attacking our police officers on the west sure. front of the Capitol. Well, I'll tell you what, Congresswoman, I was in the hearing room for your for your final hearing. I've I've seen the presentation and and we have digested your report here at Bloomberg. Uh, with with that said, does it matter that any of this is getting out that that McCarthy says it's in the public interest to know everything, not just what you chose uh, to, to show America from the committee? Obviously, you could have used any of this tape. Is it benign? Well, I think it is not benign because uh, there are certain things that cause security concerns. For example, um, we learned that there are gaps in coverage of where the cameras are. Part of our recommendation was that we should fund the placement of cameras uh, throughout the facilities uh, so that there wouldn't be a gap in in coverage. That Mm -hmm. hasn't happened yet. So, uh, you know, if that's played so that... You know, it doesn't have to just be domestic terrorists. It could be foreign terrorists to give uh, people, uh, bad guys, an idea of how to avoid detection. That would be a problem. Um, Focusing in on the escape routes. 
uh, for the staff and the members of Congress. And believe me, it wasn't just Democrats who were evacuated. It was all the members who yes, were course. evacuated. That would be a security problem. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm for transparency. As you know, I think we're the first committee that ever made all of its transcripts available. Uh, everything that we, sh- you know, we were able to uh, release on video, we made available. Uh, but there are some things for security purposes that's not responsible to, to release. I know it's been suggested some security cameras may need to be repositioned as a result. Uh, Congresswoman, there was a, a, a virtual conference called Democrats Held Today, a caucus meeting. Did party leaders it indicate that it was yesterday? Forgive me. Uh, on Wednesday. Right. Did they suggest they, they knew any more about this uh, and, and, and maybe considering taking any action in response? Well, I, we never talk about our uh, discussions in the caucus. I'll just say that, um, you know, there are a lot of things we don't yet know mm-hmm. in terms of uh, how, whether or not uh, there's an intention to um, clear things with the Capitol Police. It doesn't look like they were consulted in advance on this, mm-hmm. which is a concern. Um, you know, it is still in the possession of the House of Representatives. Uh, it's, it's unfettered access to Carlson and his team but they apparently have not handed over a hard disk with all the material. Understood. Understood. Are you concerned that this will revise history in some way, that this will tell a different story than the committee told? Well, I think Carlson has uh, unfortunately shown himself to be a liar. If you take a look at the Dominion uh, lawsuit, I mean, he knew things were false and he told his viewers otherwise. Hmm. I think that's in keeping with his trying to characterize a very uh, serious assault on the Capitol is something that was de minimis. That's not, in fact, <laughs> the truth. Mm-hmm. He may try and spin this, uh, and he's really a propagandist in some ways, um, but I, I, it's not going to be able to unwind the truth because the truth is out there. And that's why we were so committed to making sure that all of the transcripts and the videos that we had were publicly accessible because uh, I think the, the, the facts are overwhelming and uh, can't, be, can't be excused, can't be erased. The truth is out there. I've been hearing a lot from Georgia last couple of days, Congresswoman. I don't know if you've been hearing uh, the, the four-person yeah. from the Fulton County uh, uh, Court. Uh, this is, of course, the case that has been... Uh, investigating Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election, at least in Georgia, uh, is, is some of the, the the language that she's been using. We can we can just give a taste here from from what Emily Kors has been suggesting to, to see even that you will not be shocked by the outcome. This was on MSNBC. Probably not. It probably wouldn't shock you. I would not expect you to be too shocked. No, and that includes of the former president, potentially. Potentially. It might. It's hard to read into some of this, but it does seem that we've got some indictments at least recommended, if not coming here uh, in in the near term, uh, Congresswoman. Can you see a world in which the state of Georgia begins the the real legal process against Donald Trump as opposed to the federal government here in Washington? Well, I don't know any more than than uh, any of the rest of us what Georgia's doing. Let me just say that I thought it was a very irresponsible and unprofessional 
for the chairwoman of the grand jury to go out and publicly tease what they did. The grand jury proceedings are meant uh, to be confidential, and I think, although I, she tried to uh, avoid naming names, no. uh, the the appearance was very uh, unprofessional and unfortunate. Could it jeopardize the outcome of the case? I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask. I'm not a prosecutor, um, but I, I imagine it didn't help. You were a staffer on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, somewhat famously, when the committee was preparing articles of impeachment against President Nixon. Uh, that was a long time ago, obviously, Congresswoman. I wonder how that defines your interpretation of everything going on right now. Well, actually, I wasn't on the staff of the Judiciary Committee. I was on the staff of Congressman Don Edwards, who was a member of the Judiciary Committee during mm-hmm. the impeachment inquiry. And I, you know, I was just a law student. I wasn't in charge of anything, but I did end up uh, working on some of the impeachment uh, matters. And I wrote one of the articles because the other, the lawyers thought it was so frivolous, uh, they didn't want to, and stuck it on me. Wow. Um, it it. It defines uh, this. You know, when we started, um, the committee started the impeachment, there was a partisan division uh, on the committee. Um, but what happened was interesting to watch. As information became available, a bipartisan group realized that this was a serious problem, that, that Nixon had engaged in serious misconduct and likely high crimes and misdemeanors. And although it wasn't a unanimous vote to impeach, it was bipartisan. And um, one thing I'll never forget, the look on Chuck Wiggins' face. Chuck Wiggins was a big defender of President Nixon, um, very, very conservative man, but a very honorable and truthful man. He was not trying to cover up for Nixon. He believed what Nixon had told him. Mm-hmm. And when the truth came out, the sense, the look of betrayal on his face is, was amazing. And I think at that point, the people who had defended Nixon in good faith, all of them said it's up and uh, it's time for you to resign. And, of course, then Nixon did resign. That was a time when there was truth, when there was honor, and there was a shared reality. And I think we've drifted some from, from <laughs> those days. Well, that says a lot, uh, Congresswoman. Thank you for sharing that with us. Zoe Lofgren uh, served, of course, on the January 6th Select Committee, Democrat from California, and with us here in her first conversation on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we assemble the panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano have been listening and preparing themselves for whatever this footage includes, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Rick, what do we have here? Uh, we're we're going to wait to watch the show. Is this going to be like when they, you know, they open the vault uh, with Geraldo Rivera, or, or is there going to be something meaningful that we're about to see? You know, it's hard to uh, say what would be meaningful at this stage. I mean, <clears throat> I think everybody would agree we've we've heard so much about this. We, we feel like we actually know what happened, right? And so if there's something dramatic that Tucker Carlson wants to make out of this, yeah. he's, it's going to fly in the face of what everybody thinks is the current reality. And I think the committee did actually a good job of saying, here are the facts of what happened. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, he's a showman. Uh, he's a propagandist, as uh, uh, Congresswoman Loughran said, and 
And so it wouldn't surprise me that he comes up with a program, a documentary, uh, something like that, that he wants mm-hmm. to you know, get out there and show that uh, somehow the people opening the doors were all mm. part of the inside game. And this was all set up by the FBI or something. Guess, yeah, right. We'll see. We'll wait. But, um, you know, I would expect he's not going to uh, uh, just quietly pass this material through his fingers and not do anything with it. Well, I'll tell you what, Jeannie, it's going to be interesting. I just wonder, you know, for the Speaker of the House to be taking this action. He was he was there that day. We heard the tapes of him preparing to call Donald Trump. Uh, what's what's the motivation here? Is it for him to say, I told you I'd release everything. It's all been made public, not the edited version. Or is he actually trying to rewrite the story? Well, you know, this is highly unusual. And as you just discussed with Representative Lofgren, potentially very dangerous. And, you know, we have heard Kevin McCarthy say that this was to let sunshine in. His defense is transparency. But you've got to ask yourself, if that's the case, why only to one news outlet? Why without being vetted by security officials? And why not even to the entire news outlet, but to one host who has raised questions um, about January 6th. He didn't even release it to the entire Fox News organization, apparently. So transparency doesn't seem to be what he had in mind, although that's what he said. And there is some thought that it may have been quid pro quo for him becoming speaker. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted white right away, way to go. And she did end up voting for him. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 5 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Governor Ron DeSantis made a trip this week to Illinois. He spoke to the Fraternal Order of Police in Elmhurst, his latest stop on a national tour that many think, of course, will lead to a presidential run. And he had one man in mind that night, J.B. Pritzker. Yes, during COVID, even though your governor would lock you down and have his family in Florida living and free. And many other lockdown politicians would do that. It became like a cottage industry that they'd always end up attacking Florida, that we were somehow being reckless by letting people make their decisions. Then you'd see him down in Palm Beach or you'd see him down in Miami. So that was something that, but people come, yes, because... They did want to flee some of the COVID insanity that was going on in many of these other jurisdictions. Referring to Pritzker family members, of course, this is Governor Pritzker, family members who were spending time at the second home, the second family home in Florida during the pandemic. But it was the issue of crime that he zeroed in on. I mean, it's nice that people want to be, but you've got to get some of these right. And here's what we know, particularly over the last few years. The reason why you have crime that has spiraled out of control in so many of these different areas is because you have politicians putting woke ideology ahead of public safety. 
And it's certainly not the first time that you've heard that. It came up in a conversation today, a great interview uh, that our Romaine Bostic held with, yes, J.B. Pritzker, who got into this issue of crime and the way that it's being framed by Republicans around the country. The fact is that people think that things are bad in terms of crime in Chicago, and they've gotten better over the last year and a half. Uh, but the truth is that, you know, we've got to fix the challenges and then, you know, trumpet the success. Yeah. We've done that with our fiscal challenges and we're doing that with crime. Bloomberg Television's Romaine Bostic is with us right now from New York to talk a little bit more about this. Romaine, I really appreciate it. This is the first time you've ever come on my program. And I was really taken by the interview here. Uh, he was joining you. The governor was joining you to talk about uh, improved debt ratings, actually, right? And improving yeah. economic situation in Illinois. But you really touched on an important issue there. And, and this is a difficult narrative for him to spin. It is a difficult narrative for him to spin. And I think when you look at that interview, you notice two things, or at least two things jumped out at me. He cited a lot of, I guess, hard data for why things are improving in the state of Illinois, whether you're talking about their fiscal situation or whether you're talking about uh, crime relative to other cities and other states. The problem is we know that in politics, it's not always about what the statistics show. It's about what you can communicate and what you can sell to the people. And right now you have, I guess, to a certain extent, a losing battle, at least on his side, as to how that narrative is being put out there. When you have guys like Donald Trump uh, as well saying that Chicago is more dangerous than Baghdad, that really is a, a narrative that has stuck. It, it? it has stuck. And I think it's gotten a little bit more credence, not necessarily coming from someone like Donald Trump, but when you have someone like Ken Griffin, who runs sure. Citadel, one of the most uh, powerful financial firms out there, comparing Chicago to Afghanistan. <laughs> and of course, and then moving uh, his corporate headquarters away from uh, Chicago it, down yeah. into Miami. Uh, and that's a big black eye. And, and, you know, and Pritzker said in the interview, he tried to make the case that, look, when you look at the Boeings and Caterpillars and all these companies moving out of the state, oh, they're just moving a few dozen uh, corporate executives and it doesn't really affect uh, the broader sort of uh, employees that are still there. And that's certainly true. But we know the optics of having those companies calling your state home. Right. And more importantly, the optics of those same companies saying, we don't think that this is a good enough place to do business. We'd rather be in Texas or in Florida or somewhere else. Yeah, isn't that something? And of course, mm -hmm. you know, a big reason why you and I are talking about this right now is that Pritzker is frequently mentioned uh, as a potential presidential candidate. It would not be a shock uh, if he were to run, but maybe not this cycle based on uh, what he told you. I found this pretty revealing. Here's what he said when you asked him about a run for the White House. Oh, there are lots of folks who've been very kind and suggested that I should and approached me about it. But um, but like I said, I, I intend to be governor of Illinois for the next four years. And by the way, Joe Biden is running for reelection and I'm supporting him in that effort. You, so you are going to back Joe Biden uh, if he announces uh, his formal. Yes, I will. That's the important part there. As you know, we know half typically the, the most recent poll we saw today from uh, from Marist College, NPR and PBS uh, had something like 45 percent of Democrats looking for another mm -hmm. name, another person other not named Joe Biden. This governor, I don't know if he's just saying the right things, Romaine, but he's clear that he wants Joe Biden to run. Uh, well, he, that's what he said publicly. And of course, remember when he was running for re-election, this was actually the big overhang. A lot of mm -hmm. people were saying you're running for another four years as governor. Uh, that's going to overlap with the presidential cycle in which many people thought that he had presidential ambitions. Uh, you know, if you take him for his word, then sure, he'll still be in Illinois for the next uh, four years of fulfilling that term. But I think there are a lot of people that say there, there might be an opening in the Democratic Party for someone yeah. other than Joe Biden. Maybe he potentially ends up being that person.
I guess you just he just needs to wait to see what happens like so many others on the sidelines here. And a lot of people may not realize that Romaine used to be a creature of Washington, right? You were a reporter here for a lot I, of years. I, I, I still did. have I never was, seen I, you in I, D.C. Though. I was a swamp creature, and, and now I've been liberated. Is that why you never come back? <laughs> I mean, my God, come and, come and see us sometime I, in Washington. I'm coming down this weekend, Joe. Is that true? Is Excellent. your show on the air on the weekends? We try not to be. <laughs> okay. Have a lovely time. All right. I'll Romaine see you Bostic with us here. Yeah. Amazingly on Bloomberg Sound On. Let's reassemble the panel. Uh, Rick and Jeannie here. Uh, what do you think, Jeannie, as a Democrat? I guess maybe I should be careful about saying that he's he wants Joe Biden to run. He said he'll support him if he runs. Is the, is the, the choice of words is important there, isn't it? It is important. You know, as long as Biden runs, if he decides to, he will support him. But if not, I think all bets are off and you could see a fight between who many people are, say, the two most progressive or leading progressive governors in the country, which would be Gavin Newsom and J.B. Pritzker. Mm -hmm. And they both have an awful lot to offer. And I think, you know, what we see here with DeSantis is trying to push on the issue on which Democrats in states like Illinois, New York, and California have been most vulnerable has been this issue of crime, and he is pushing hard on that. But, of course, Pritzker has an answer because, of course, he has pushed back on, he pushed through, rather, laws banning assault weapons, high-capacity magazines. So while you have DeSantis talking about woke ideology, he's actually pushing through laws that can actually have a real impact. So he's going to try to answer by focusing on those laws. And, of course, he is not afraid to attack DeSantis on on Twitter and elsewhere. What does it tell us, though, that DeSantis is taking aim at him, uh, Rick? Does that make him uh, more viable as a potential presidential candidate? Or it's just good politics for Ron DeSantis to touch down in Chicago and take a swipe at the governor? Sure. Good, good, good politics to take a swipe at the governor. I mean, he's a uh, well-known liberal Democrat who uh, may have a future nationally. And so he plays a perfect role uh, as the uh, opposite of what um, Governor DeSantis is 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 pitching people in Chicago. So it's mm-hmm. it's just a perfect foil. And of course, you always get more headlines if you attack someone. And if you then, unless you show up otherwise and just say, "Hey, well, things are really great. We got sunshine in Florida, and we're you know changing the school system." So uh, right. th- this gives him a lot more attention. Um, but uh, but look, I mean, you know, uh, Pritzker is a uh, rising Democrat nationally, and he's moving around and, it's also and going a billionaire. after people like uh, like uh, DeSantis. So yeah, it's fair game. Yeah. Is he so? He's a legitimate uh, opponent at some point in your eyes as a Republican. You're keeping an eye on Pritzker. Not only is he high profile, he's got a lot of money, Rick. He's got a lot of money, his own money. Uh, he's actually good at fundraising, uh, and he comes from a Midwest state. I mean, like we forget a lot that uh, Democrats have had like pretty weak attendance uh, from the Midwest when they start to look around for uh, national leadership. And so he actually has a very positive track record. I mean, we heard him in the Bostic interview today talking about, oh, my you know, credit rating is going way up and my you know, debt's down. And, right. you know, there's more crime in Miami than there is in Chicago. So he's working on those talking points. And, uh, you know, that may work within the Democratic Party. Unreal. Well, you know, Chicago is vying for the Democratic convention, Jeannie. And it looks like it's coming down to Chicago versus Atlanta. And I don't mean to upset anyone in New York when I say that, but our reporting would suggest that New York is running uh, behind those two cities here. If you're a Democrat making that choice and it'll come down to Joe Biden, do you touch down in Chicago to continue the narrative that Governor Pritzker is outlining here? Or do you go to Atlanta, which may be in the middle of a red state, but it's been pretty darn important for Democrats lately? Yeah, this is a tough call for me. And I know New York is way back, probably in, in far beyond 
behind in third, and I, I think that happens to make sense. I have to say, I would probably, it's a tough call between Chicago and Atlanta. I would probably say go Atlanta, although to Rick's very important point, Democrats have had a real difficulty in, you know, the Midwest, and that would be really, really important, you know, but for many of us, Chicago means 1968. You know, maybe they go there and try to turn the tables on what was a disaster for Democrats, although I don't think they want to relive that. So I'd say Atlanta by a thread. We don't have a a lot of time here, Rick, but you've been in the convention business. What's smarter politically for Joe Biden? You know, look, I mean, there's no question that the route to the White House has to go through Georgia and Arizona these days. So uh, the only one in that list that's uh, vying for a convention is Georgia. I think they'd be nuts not to uh, put it in a a big swing state like that and, and, that and and spend more time talking to voters in Georgia than they otherwise would be if they're in Chicago. I hope they're listening to Rick. He knows these things. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The fastest hour in politics, keeping an eye on East Palestine and have been for the past couple of weeks. And finally, at this point, somebody from the administration shows up. Other than we need to be clear, the EPA and the CDC who were there within hours, despite what we heard yesterday and in days prior from Donald Trump. You have a president going to Ukraine and you have people in Ohio that are in desperate need of help. And I was very proud to say that I announced I was going to Ohio. You know, FEMA said we're not going to give them anything. The Biden administration said we're not going to give them anything. And then I announced I'm going. It's a little that I mean, we can walk through this. It's not really FEMA's job, but FEMA did, I guess, offer some help. When Donald Trump went there yesterday, we talked about that quite a bit. Fast forward to today. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, why has President Biden not gone to East Palestine? What's he been doing? The president has stayed updated on this for the past several weeks. While he was in Poland, he spoke to uh, the important folks on the ground, the leaders, the leadership on the ground, including uh, his leadership in those uh, in those uh, respective agencies on what was going on and getting updates. And he will continue to do that and do everything that we can. And in East Palestine, yes, the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, 24 hours after Donald Trump is there, shows up facing a throng of reporters and cameras, everyone asking the same question. Did you wait too long? The answer to your question is yes. I felt strongly about this and uh, could have expressed that sooner. Again, I was taking pains to respect the, the role that I have and the role that I don't have, but that should not have stopped me from weighing in about how I felt about what was happening to this community. And there was a lot more where this came from. He toured the area where the the train derailment happened, where the chemicals were vented and burned, creating this absurd scene over this small town. And he did take a swing at Donald Trump a couple of times when it comes to the regulations and even more. Listen to this one. To any national political figure who has decided to get involved in uh, the plight of East Palestine, uh, Palestine, excuse me, uh, I have a simple message, uh, yeah. which is I need your help. OK, because- so <laughs> that's going in an ad, right? Mayor Pete touches down in East Palestine and asks Donald Trump for help. Let's reassemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Isn't that what you do with that, Rick? Oh, yeah, that's like that's a commercial. I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure the approach he took uh, as a cabinet member in the Biden administration 
you know, referring to Donald Trump as a national political figure instead of just saying <laughs> former President Trump. Come on. Uh, you know, and, and say you want to do something productive. We need your help. I, I, yeah. Wow. Really? I mean, the guy who uh, uh, really uh, did did a lot to dismantle some of the, the regulation that helps govern the safety of the rails. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't understand why it wasn't a sharper uh, tone by this administration. I'm kind of taken back by that. And I, I think yeah. it basically gave Trump a free hit. Why go 24 hours later, Jeannie? I, I know the idea was that, hey, everyone's telling you to go. But when you do it the very next day, it really does look like you were sent, you know, to, to make up for not going because you were embarrassed by Donald Trump. And then I don't think he was ad-libbing here. I think he was actually kind of being trying to be clever with the national political figure. I need your help trying to call his bluff, but prime fodder for an ad. It is, you know, and, and let's be clear, it's it's sort of this notion that the Secretary of Transportation has to go. Yeah. Okay, the train has derailed. It's not really about transportation. <laughs> it's about the EPA. It's decidedly not transporting any longer. It's not transporting, but he is this very well-known <laughs> figure who represents something. So he's been on the chopping line. And, you know, I have to mm-hmm. say rightly so to a certain extent because he had a very weird sort of response to this entire thing. There was one point when he said you know thousands of trains derail every year i can't see them all but they don't all release chemicals and they don't rise to this level and so i do think he needed to go he needed to go sooner he did not he made up for it by going today because he knows the administration and his own response has been a bit tone deaf this is sort of something that's not too difficult go there express your support say you'll do what you can you know the president will come as soon as he's able you know this is not that difficult and why it got so complicated, I'm not quite sure. But the reality, again, is this is a town of 5,000 people. No one has died. The testing, the air, the water is said to be clean. But yeah. they are concerned. They're airing that. And they have a right to be heard. And the administration has got to show they know how to handle and respond to this. And they've been caught flat-footed on this. You know, there's no two ways around that. He did touch the issue of regulations, as we discussed yesterday, some of the rollbacks uh, during the Trump administration, at least did not help uh, the number of train derailments happening. If it wasn't specific to uh, East Palestine, Donald Trump uh, dismissed that idea when he was asked about it there yesterday. Here's what Secretary Buttigieg said. One thing he could do is uh, uh, express support for reversing the deregulation uh, that uh, happened on his watch. I heard him say he had nothing to do with it, even though it was in his administration. Uh, so if he had nothing to do with it, and uh, they did it in his administration against his will, uh, maybe he could come out and say that, uh, uh, that uh, he supports us moving in a different direction. Uh, we're not afraid to own our policies when it comes to raising the bar on regulation. Rick, even if everything he's saying is true here, it, it does have the feeling that he's being led by Donald Trump, right? That this is completely reactionary. Should they have waited longer to go? Well, I, I, I think the the message, and, and Jeannie made a good point about this, they, they waited too long to go, right? They should have been ahead of all this. And, well, yeah, and, and gotten, but at a certain point, to go the day after kind of looks like... Yeah, I don't think it's so bad about going the day after. Uh, you know, I don't think you want the Trump thing to echo out there any longer. But, like, he mm. was way too cute about the whole Trump presence there. Yeah. Oh, well, I was hoping he was actually going to endorse our policies. Well, <laughs> who believes that's ever going to happen? I mean, like, you know, honestly, it's just too cute. Uh, I think this administration 
should not have been focused on Donald Trump as much as they were and really focused on what was going on on the ground. I mean, they, they, they could have talked about the trillion dollars in infrastructure spending and how yes. much of that's going to railing improvements and whether or not that'll make us safer for the people like this when they sit around a, a town you know, where the train runs right through the middle of town. So uh, I, there were so many better talking points, I think, that they could have done to make the administration look like that they're trying to move you know, the safety and security of our rail system forward. Uh, and instead, they they looked like they were more than happy to have this sort of sarcastic mm. Trump press conference where, you know, he became another big part of the day. That's not good. Jeannie, what's the recovery play here? Does the administration lobby for bigger fines than are being called for? Do they go after the the, the rail company, in this case, Norfolk Southern? How, how do they act like they're doing something that is helping? Because sending the EPA... And the CDC, which is called for, that's protocol in this case, apparently is not going to cut it. You know, all of the above, you know, the reality is they show up, they express empathy, they express all the help that they can give. You know, let's not forget the governor, DeWine, didn't want the feds in there to begin with when this started. So there is another flip side to this, but they have to do exactly what you're talking about. They have to show they're in control of this. They also have to say what many people in the political sphere have been saying. We are happy to contrast our record on regulation and, as Rick mentioned, infrastructure structure with the Donald Trump's any day. Let's look at that. You know, you don't say that, though, on the ground with people who are suffering and concerned. You express empathy, you express support, you express anything you can do to help them through this time, and then you take it to Donald Trump at another time. I don't know why he is trying to combat Donald Trump one at a time on the ground. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on East Palestine, as I mentioned. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 5 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The foreperson of the special grand jury investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, right? Fulton County is giving prosecutors agita because Emily Kors, that's her name, just did a a big round of interviews, like a tour of interviews, if I could use that term. And some think she may have said too much. She spoke to the Associated Press, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the New York Times, and NBC News, which asked her if the Fulton County Grand Jury recommended charging, yes, Donald Trump. Probably not. It probably wouldn't shock you. I would not expect you to be too shocked, no. And that includes of the former president, potentially. Potentially, it might. Going on to say it's not rocket science, but you won't be shocked by the outcome. She went on to mention specific names, describe the thrill of meeting Rudy Giuliani and shaking his hand. And while Donald Trump did not testify before this grand jury, she really wanted to see that happen. Honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. 
And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump cool. of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. Okay, she's laughing, she's smiling, she, she's loving being on TV. And so it's not just what she said that might be an issue here, it's her candor. And the way she decided to comport herself on television and in these newspaper interviews. But she may be jeopardizing the outcome of this trial. We asked Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren about it earlier. I want to ask the panel about it now, too. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Jeannie, there's the, there's the matter of the case itself. And we have to remind everyone the special grand jury does not indict. Prosecutors would have to take their recommendation and make the case before a new normal grand jury to pursue charges. And we understand that may already be happening. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like this before. Did she jeopardize the outcome of this case? She very well might have. And I think your discussion with Representative Lofgren, you know, Representative Lofgren said irresponsible, unprofessional, unfortunate. And it does potentially jeopardize the indictments. I mean, think about the bizarre things she said. She held a Ninja Turtle popsicle that she got at an ice cream party thrown by the DA's office. Do DA's offices actually hold ice cream parties for jurors and a grand jury. She said Brian Kemp didn't look happy to be there. That's a stunner. And Lindsey Graham said it's not too early to wear a Christmas hat. (laughs) I mean, the list goes on and on. And yet all of it gives an opening to Donald Trump's lawyers to say this is more than bizarre. It is potentially a reason that he may get out of an indictment. So Mm. Donald Trump, two good things yesterday and today, the trip to the derailment and this, you know, it is absolutely stunning. Is this just another face palm in the age we're living in here, Rick? What would possess someone having had such the responsibility? Uh, My God, this went on for months. The foreperson of a special grand jury investigating a former president of the United States uh, going to play around with people on TV and in the media like this. I don't even know what to say. Well, I want to, I want to meet the rest of the jury because they elected her for a person. I mean, what in the world were they thinking? Uh, no, it's really incredible. I mean, it's, maybe this is the age we live in. Uh, she'd have probably been doing this on some social media site I, if I guess, she didn't yeah. do it on the New York Times or the CNN. So uh, it's, it's really extraordinary. I, I, I still don't really quite understand how this could jeopardize uh, a legal case. I think Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Wills. Uh, would have preferred her not to become such an instant uh, uh, celebrity overnight mm-hmm. at her expense. But um, if she's moving forward with another um, uh, a case, you know, with 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 indictments potentially uh, in front of a new grand jury, uh, this isn't going to stop that from happening. So uh, the reality is, it, it is sad that yeah. our judicial system is is looking this way today. Well, Donald Trump, after claiming total exoneration from the grand jury, posted a truth. Zakor is going around doing a media tour, revealing incredibly the grand jury's inner workings and thoughts. This is not justice. It's a kangaroo court, he says. Thanks, Rick and Jeannie. See you tomorrow. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.